came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 29th of August. 2019. And we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that yes, Virginia, global warming is real and it's happening to the planet you're on at this very moment. See what you can do to help. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today's featured interview is with Dr. Andy Tompkins, who is an Associate Professor at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Andy finds and analyses meteorites and applies his research to looking for evidence of life on Mars. And we'll also hear about the fabulous citizen science project, Fireballs in the Sky. Then, as usual, we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave to find out what's up, Doc? What's up in the sky for observers and astrophotographers for the next two weeks? And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and particle physics. So let's zoom down to Melbourne right now and hear Andy tell us about meteorite forensics. Hello, Andy. Hello, Brendan. It's great to be talking with you, Andy. Following a fabulous public lecture I attended about a month ago, and I did a follow-up, and today we're very fortunate to be speaking with Dr. Andy Tompkins, who conducts analyses of meteorites and applies his research to planetary science, particularly with respect to looking for evidence for life on Mars. Andy is an Associate Professor in the School of Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And he and his team of PhDs and honours students have collected over a third of Australia's meteorite haul, often from the vast and inhospitable Nullarbor Plain. And they are one of the driving forces of the Citizen Science Project, Fireballs in the Sky. You obviously have far too much fun, Andy. Yeah, it's great fun doing science sometimes, Brendan. One of the reasons I do it is just for the fun of doing the science, getting out there in the bush and looking for meteorites is a great way to do that. Fantastic. So before we talk about meteorites and cosmic dust and life on Mars and sulfur isotopes and fireballs in the sky, Can you tell us where you grew up, please, Andy, and tell us how you became interested in science and space and geology and earth sciences in the first place? 
Yeah, Brendan, I grew up in Canberra, and I guess when I was a little kid, maybe sort of eight, nine, ten years old, for some reason I started collecting rocks, and my, my dad really encouraged that. And he used to take us out prospecting for gold and gems and that sort of stuff, just out in the bush and having fun, that sort of thing. That sort of taught me a little bit about geology way back then. And so when it came to thinking about what I might want to do at university, I decided that was a good track to follow. So I actually went to university to do geology, which is probably a little bit different to a lot of other people going to university. Okay, cool. Now let's just go back a little bit. And can you tell us a little about your school days and your early ambitions? And did those ambitions change? Yeah, during my school days, when I was in primary school, I was interested in rocks. And then getting into high school, I became more interested in getting out fishing with my mates and just having fun, doing adventures in the bush. So I kind of drifted away from geology a little bit. And then I didn't do particularly well at school compared to how I might have done. And so, I don't know, when I came to the end of my schooling years, I sort of looked back at the geology that I'd done and thought I might be able to do a good job of that. And so I decided to go to university to, to follow that path. Fantastic, Andy. So after your school career, you completed your undergraduate degree in applied science in geology. And after a couple of years as an exploration geoscientist, you completed your PhD in geology, then over to Canada, to Calgary, for a postdoc before returning back to Australia to lecture at Monash University, where you are now, Associate Professor. That's a great journey. Yeah, it's taken a fair few years to go through that journey, actually. <laughs> so there's been a lot of different stops along the way, and that's one of the really good things about geology is you experience lots of different places in the world and I guess an academic career path is good because you can take it to different places and experience different cultures for a few years and then come back to Australia if you like. Exactly, and it doesn't have to be a straight trajectory. Thanks, Andy. Now, you lecture in economic geology, metamorphic petrology and field geology, but for your episode here, I hope we can focus on your research specialty of Meteoritics, is that right? Meteoritics and early solar system evolution. Can you tell us what meteoritics is, please, and why you've developed meteoritics as the passion for your research? Well, yeah, meteoritics is basically the science of using meteorites to try and understand the early solar system. And so I guess I got into that. I was interested in planetary science and the solar system, all that sort of thing for, for many years, but I got into it properly when I was teaching a geological mapping camp and went looking for meteorites in the desert and happened to stumble across a really big meteorite. Then when I looked inside it with a microscope, I found very much the same sort of minerals and textures that I've been looking at in my study of mineral deposits. And so it became something that was really interesting to look at that was more an interest-based research direction rather than following the same old thing that I've been doing for quite a while. So it was, it was really very much following my interests. Fantastic. Thanks, Andy. So let's start with the broad picture before we zoom in on the internal structure of meteorites and what meteorites can tell us about life on Mars and the evolution of a solar system. What are meteors? Are they rocks from space or chunks of metal from space? How do they form in the first place? Where do they come from? And how common are they in our solar system? So meteors are basically those things you see when you look up in the sky at night and you see a, a bright streak flashing across the sky. 
and they represent little bits of space dust or rocks from asteroids. So you can imagine two asteroids colliding into each other and bits breaking off of various different sizes and some of those entering our atmosphere, some of them are really big, some of them are really small and so you get a range of different types of meteors and some of them when they're really big are big enough to land on the ground sometimes. Okay, well, thanks for that. Let's move on then to meteorites. Some meteors don't burn up completely when they crash into Earth's atmosphere. And meteorites can be found, as you mentioned, you've found a big one. How do you and your team of meteor hunters find them? I guess we've got a couple of different techniques for finding the meteorites. One of them employs the Desert Fireball Network, which is a series of cameras that look up at the night sky every night of the year and sometimes they track meteors coming in through the atmosphere and we can triangulate to figure out where they landed on the ground and go and find them and the other technique we have for looking for meteorites is to go out to the Nullarbor Plain which is a limestone plain so white rocks only and we walk around basically looking for dark rocks amongst all the white rocks because it's a very old surface it hasn't changed much for many thousands of years, we have a high proportion of meteorites sitting there compared to other places away from deserts. Now, you mentioned micrometeorites. Are they the same as meteorites, but only smaller? And how do you find and collect micrometeorites? Well, micrometeorites, are, I guess if you imagine what I was just saying before about Asteroids banging into each other and different sized bits coming off. Micrometeorites are those fine dust bits that come off. And the really, the really fine bits basically coming through our atmosphere at the same sort of speed as normal meteorites, but uh, slow down much more quickly because they're so small. Though sometimes they don't even light up and you don't see them as shooting stars, um, and sometimes you do a little bit. But basically, there's about 100 times more material coming in as small dust particles compared to the proper meteorites. Wow. Okay, so you've collected meteorites and micrometeorites. You bring them back to your lab. Now, I did have a look at one of your papers and saw that one of the instruments you use is an electron microprobe that, that looks like a giant robotic T4 bacteriophage for our listeners that have done a bit of biology. What different analysis techniques do you use to determine the elemental composition of the meteorites and the micrometeorites that you find? Well, we use a lot of different techniques. Electron microscopy, a lot of people would have heard of, but one of the more interesting techniques we've used used is to use the Australian synchrotron to do several different things. So with the Australian synchrotron, you can use something called x-ray fluorescence mapping to make maps of the minerals in a section through a meteorite or you can use x-ray tomography which looks at the three-dimensional mineral structure inside a a meteorite so you make a three-dimensional model of a meteorite and you can use powder diffraction to look at the proportions of different minerals inside a meteorite. Having the Australian synchrotron on campus here at Monash University is a great advantage that we use quite a lot. Wow, yes, and and just an aside, I saw today that the Australian Synchrotron have just got their hands on a bit of moon rock that they're going to put in the boom. Yeah, that's right. So that piece of moon rock was lent by one of my colleagues in the United Kingdom. Fantastic. Okay, so now I've seen that there are some such things as lunar meteorites, as we've just mentioned, and Martian meteorites. 
Can you tell us how your analysis of meteorites can tell you where they originally came from and how on earth, if you'll excuse the pun, did lunar meteorites and Martian meteorites get to be sitting out in the Nullarbor Plain or someone's backyard? Well, I guess I'll answer the last bit first. Yep. The easiest thing to think about is to picture a very large asteroid hitting the moon or Mars and the energy of that impact is enough to blast off chunks of the moon or Mars into space and then they can work their way by orbital dynamics across to the, to the Earth and they come in through our atmosphere and then land in the desert or anywhere actually, some of them land in the ocean. So they can land pretty much anywhere. We just happen to go to the Nullarbor Plain because it's the best place in Australia to look for them. And then how do we know that they're from Mars or the Moon? Well, we use the proportions of different elements in the rock. And for Mars, we initially figured that out by uh, looking at the proportions of gases in the meteorite. And so what happened there was when the Viking lander landed on Mars, it measured the gases in the atmosphere. And meteorites from Mars actually have the same proportions of gases as what the Viking lander measured. So that's how we know for sure. That is so cool. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Now, in every episode, we like to put our propeller hats on and look a little deeper into research. In your case, you do amazing things by looking at some different isotopes found in meteorites. Some look at oxygen isotopes, but you've focused on sulfur isotopes in Martian meteorites. Why this? And what does your analysis tell you? Well, we wanted to look at sulphur isotopes because uh, other scientists looking at sulphur isotopes in Earth rocks have used it to show that the Earth's atmosphere changed from having 0.0001% oxygen 2.5 billion years ago up to the current 21% oxygen in our atmosphere now uh, via a series of steps of very dramatic increase in oxygen. And that was done by photosynthesizing bacteria. So we thought... We could go to Mars and look at the sulfur isotopes in Martian meteorites to look at the atmospheric evolution on Mars. And we've found that it was quite different to the Earth. Perhaps not surprisingly, but some people have thought it might have been comparable to the Earth. Awesome. Okay. Look, while we're talking about origins, earlier you told us about collecting micrometeorites. Can you tell us a bit more about analysing them and their composition and origins, please? Yeah, so we've recently published a paper on looking at how many micrometeorites there are on Mars compared to the Earth. And we found that there are probably many, many more micrometeorites on Mars because there's no rainfall there at the moment. There's much less erosion going on and they can just accumulate over time. And we were looking at where they might preferentially accumulate and we found that they would probably preferentially accumulate where the wind makes them sort of get deposited in, in cracks in the bedrock and in, in the leaves behind, in the lee behind rocks, that sort of thing. And what that means is there are particular places on Mars where there are more nutrients for life if it exists there. So the micrometeorites contain nutrients like reduced phosphorus and reduced sulfur and iron and most primitive life forms on Earth used those sorts of elements for life. And so we're we're sort of making comparisons about where the best place to look for life on Mars might be. Wow, okay. That is great forensics, obviously, Andy. Thank you. Now, 
We've seen a huge growth in citizen science projects in the last five years or so, and Fireballs in the Sky is a truly fabulous project which, together with NASA and the Desert Fireball Network, Fireballs in the Sky is rolling out worldwide to become a global fireball observatory and has a beautifully designed app that anyone can install on their phone. Can you tell us a bit about Fireballs in the Sky and your work with that project, please? Yeah, so, Brendan, it's mostly the guys at Curtin University who have been leading the Fireballs in the Sky project, but we've been involved as well. And the idea there is that there are many, many more people looking up at the sky at any one time than just us scientists, there's only a few of us. And so the everyday person makes more observations than we possibly can. It sort of gives a way that people can make recordings, scientific recordings about what they see when they, when they see a, a big fireball that might have dropped meteorites on the ground. The idea there is we'll have a better chance of finding meteorites if people record the information that they see effectively and help us find them. Fantastic. Now, the mic is all yours, Andy, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges we face in science or science denialism or science career paths or your passion for blue sky research or our quest for new knowledge or even science outreach itself. The mic's all yours, Andy. (laughs) Well, I guess one of the things that's annoying about science at the moment and you know I work at the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment, which has some of the leading climate researchers in Australia. What I see around me is that all these climate scientists are really frustrated by our government refusing to accept the evidence for climate change and, and not doing anything about it. So I really, I really wish the government would pay attention to what the school kids are telling them, what the scientists are telling them, what the rest of the world is telling them, and pull their finger out and actually do something. It's really pathetic the way our government is acting. Exactly, Andy. It's a debacle the way the politicians are just basing what their decisions on the money that they have a vested interest in. Yes, um, the lobbying system. Okay, thank you, Andy. Is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? I'm keeping my eye on the night sky, so watch out for those meteorites (laughs) and meteors coming in. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We'll encourage everyone to do the same. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Andy Tompkins. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule. And we'll encourage all listeners to install Fireballs in the Sky on their device and follow Andy on Twitter. He does fabulous posts as at Dr. Andy underscore Tompkins. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Brendan. It's been fun. It was good. Excellent. So let's go over to Adelaide now to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. And I just went outside a couple of minutes ago and the Milky Way is looking magnificent and the Magellanic clouds, and I saw that Jupiter has moved out of the Milky Way and it's now northwest of the Milky Way from my point of view. Indeed, indeed. In the OPU at the moment. Very good. Okay then, Ian, can you tell us 
What's up in the night sky for the next two weeks? What's up in the night sky in the next two weeks? Well, the sky is still dominated by Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter is now highest in the sky just before the end of twilight, but it's still easily visible from astronomical twilight, which is an hour and a half after sunset, all the way to about one o'clock in the morning. Uh, so it'll be good for telescopic observation from astronomical twilight to round about midnight, and it gets a little bit low. If you're using a telescope, you'll be able to see the red spot. The red spot appears to have stopped disintegrating and uh, seems to be consolidating and becoming redder. We still don't know why, but uh, it's been interesting to watch. And if you have a, a decent telescope, uh, you may wish to keep on observing the Great Red Spot and see how it changes over the coming weeks and months. Now, Jupiter will be visited by the Moon on the 6th. In fact, it will be very close to the last quarter moon, and you might be able to get uh, in a wide field eyepiece and get uh, Jupiter and the uh, Moon close together. And, of course, the next brightest object is Saturn. Saturn is deep in the heart of the Milky Way, not far from the centre of our galaxy. It's not right next to any really amazing objects just at the moment, but if you have a pair of binoculars and scooting around the general area of Saturn, you'll be able to see uh, the uh, Triple Nebula and Lagoon Nebula, which would be excellent to look at. Very good. Those of you who caught the occultation of Saturn earlier this month, you have another chance if you're living uh, north or line from just below Townsville. So this is not at such a convenient time. It's occurring around about midnight, so you have to get up or stay up until a bit after midnight to see what's going on. The moon and Saturn are very close. In fact, closer than it was in our previous event, so it'll fit in quite nicely in a high-power telescope like this. It'll be well worth observing Saturn uh, skimming underneath the moon. In some cases, you may be able to see Saturn's rays in the Fantastic. Worth a look. And we're the only bright planets at the moment. Mars is too close to the sun, and Mercury and Venus are quite deep in the twilight of the fortnight that this podcast will cover. Both Mercury and Venus will be just above the horizon. In fact, they'll be about a finger width above the horizon. So at half an hour after sunset. So unless you have a flat, clear horizon like an ocean, or um, a desert or something like that, uh, you're not going to be able to see them. But they'll start coming back uh, in the following week. And so we'll have a rather beautiful uh, lineup of Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn to look forward to uh, in the next few podcasts. Wow. And Mars won't really be visible uh, until sometime in November. Well, the first few days that this podcast covers will be the last days of the Globe Night night pollution survey. So if you have a chance to go out and have a look at your skies, why not uh, take your time to uh, estimate how bright your sky is and send using these charts that are found at the Globe at Night site and send it off to the Globe at Night so you can get a better idea of not only what pollution extent, but how light pollution is changing over time in the communities around our city. So that'd be a really exciting thing to do. Another great example of citizen science making contributions. A very good example of citizen science making contributions.
Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us? Yeah, indeed. They think they've discovered the lunar landing module from the Apollo 10 mission. Now, the Apollo 10 mission was the dress rehearsal, if you like, for the moon landing, where they had the full mock-up lunar module and the lunar module separated from the command module, got within spitting distance, so to speak, of the lunar surface and came back up again. In fact, they deliberately underfueled the lunar landing module so that the astronauts were attempted to go down and make a first landing themselves. Now, the lunar landing module was uh, named Snoopy and the command module was named Charlie Brown. And, but after they'd uh, done the, docking, the uh, return docking manoeuvres, the Snoopy module was ejected and ejected into a solar uh, orbit, and everyone forgot about it. Until a couple of years ago, they started looking for the Snoopy module again, and they think they found it. A fair bit of this research was inspired by the uh, astronomer Nick Howard, who's been looking for it for some time. In fact, amusingly, that it's already been long, the small Earth crossing asteroid 2018-82. But once I uh, looked at its orbit and looked at its reflectance, it was obvious that this was not uh, an asteroid or a standard asteroid, and it's most likely the, um, uh, the Snoopy module. Now, the module uh, loops around once every 382 days, almost a year, and our next opportunity to have a good look at it will be in 2020. But it has all the features necessary of the lunar module in terms of its orbit, in terms of its timing, in terms of the mass balance. So if it was an asteroid, you'd expect it to uh, have a certain density. Uh, the density of this object is consistent with an artificial uh, hollow object rather than being a rocky or a, a, a rocky um, uh, asteroid. And some work that has been done uh, by some of the uh, supercomputer and winding back at all that suggests that it uh, was indeed uh, originated from the moon uh, around about the time of the Apollo 10 mission. This will require a bit more work as they serve up the orbit of this uh, object. Now, unfortunately, uh, 2018-82, most probably Snoopy, is really faint, and you need real access to the, the best telescopes to pick it up. It's currently plus 29.5, really, really faint. But magnitudes dimmer than 20 are the province of the ginormous telescopes. It comes. It has a period of about one year. It comes back in 2020. It won't be making a decent close approach to Earth until July 10, 2037, where it's going to pass about 16 times the Earth moon distance, and then you would uh, be able to uh, uh, do things like do radar imaging, a bunch of uh, spectroscopy, and a bunch of other things. It's also been suggested we could uh, catch up with it and capture it, bring it back to Earth, which is an interesting, important space artifact. But it may be better to leave it in, in, uh, in orbit, uh, amongst other things. 
bringing it back to work has a whole lot, a lot of logistical problems. But once you bring it back to work, it's going to be whether you have other preservation issues. Whereas in outer space, it's, that's where it's meant to be. Of course, there are different preservations in space. We slowly pushed in its orbit by uh, radiation pressure. It will be impacted by micrometeorites. So there's a lot to be seen before leaving it in orbit to whether naturally, in the same way, you would uh, not want to drag uh, the Sphinx in from the, from the uh, Egyptian desert into a uh, large air-conditioned room because it might erode. And our very own Australian Dr. Space Junk is on the side of uh, keeping the uh, module in space as, as a, uh, a lasting monument to our exploration. Of course, in space, it will last for quite some time. It's not going to go anywhere very, uh, very soon. But what we could do, however, is launch a following mission so we could send a spacecraft with cameras to catch up with the module and then just have it sit there following a Snoopy, beaming back images continuously all the time as it loops around Earth and the Sun. And I think that would be a very interesting idea. Our camera spacecraft continually following Snoopy, sending images back to Earth as a kind of deep space museum. Well, that's an idea, Ian, but I think finding the funding and finding the audience for it might be problematic. Yeah, well, I mean, if you, if you do your settings right, you, when Snoopy comes past the Earth and Moon system, you have amazing images of the module as it goes past the Earth and Moon. Because space and big, the Earth and Moon will look really small. But if, we could, if you have a small telescope on board, you could, you could increase the, uh, the size. But yeah, I think it would make a very interesting project, and I'd watch it. <laughs> And others would too. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been fantastic again. Thank you very much, Brendan, for having me on and pointing people to the wonders of the night sky. And uh, again, I hope everyone has clear skies to enjoy what's up there. We'll see you later and we'll see you a fortnight's time. All the very best. Good night, Ian. Good night, Brendan. And to finish up as usual, here's our news highlights. This first story is from the NASA website. Mystery of purple lights in sky solved with help from citizen scientists. From 2015 to 2016, citizen scientists, people who are excited about a science field but don't necessarily have a formal educational background, shared over 30 reports of mysterious lights associated with auroras in online forums and with a team of scientists that run a project called Aurorasaurus. The Citizen Science Project, funded by NASA and the National Science Foundation, tracks the aurora borealis through user-submitted reports and tweets. The Allosaurus team, led by Liz McDonald, a space scientist at NASA's Goddard Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, conferred to determine the identity of this mysterious phenomenon. MacDonald and her colleague Eric Donovan at the University of Calgary in Canada talked with the main contributors of these images, amateur photographers 
in a Facebook group called Alberta Aurora Chasers, which included Notany Barassa and lead administrator Chris Ratzloff. Ratzloff gave the phenomena a fun new name, Steve, and it stuck. But people still didn't know what Steve was. Scientists' understanding of Steve changed on a night that Barassa snapped his pictures because Barassa wasn't the only one observing Steve. Ground-based, all-sky cameras run by the University of Calgary and the University of California, Berkeley, took pictures of large areas of the sky and captured Steve and the auroral display far to the north. And up into space, ESA's, the European Space Agency's swarm satellite, just happened to be passing over the exact area at the same time and documented Steve as well. For the first time, scientists had ground and satellite views of Steve and have now learned, despite its ordinary name, that Steve may be an extraordinary puzzle piece in painting a better picture of how Earth's magnetic fields function and interact with charged particles in space. Their fantastic findings are published in a study released last week in Science Advances. You can read it in full at tinyurlcom forward slash Aurora Steve, all lowercase, all one word, because it is not behind a predatory journal paywall. And here's another interesting story. We have been reporting on the SKA regularly since we started this podcast back in 2016 and the construction of the Square Kilometre Array in South Africa and Australia has become a feather in the cap of both countries' scientific communities. When completed in mid-2020s, the South African SKA will have 197 dishes searching for faint radio signals from distant stars and galaxies. Now, South Africa's sparsely populated Northern Cape province, near the town of Carnarvon, is the perfect location for this international scientific endeavour. Sprawling farms separate towns that are small and far-flung, keeping radio interference to a minimum. Except, ironically, nobody thought to look up. Above Carnarvon, at 35,000 feet, is the flight path connecting Cape Town and Joburg, with over 50 scheduled flights a day. Now, back in 2007, South Africa's government passed the Astronomy Geographic Advantage Act, protecting the Karoo Central Astronomy Advantage areas where the SKA is located. According to the Act, the use of the radio frequency spectrum from 100 MHz up to 25.5 GHz is prohibited in that region, and that includes all the frequencies which are allocated for use in aviation. Now, it's worth noting that the Act specifically excludes aviation for now, but the door is open for the Ministers of Transport and Science and Technology to agree on, quote, measures necessary for the protection of the Karoo Corps and Central Astronomy Advantage areas, unquote. To find a solution, a technical working group has been formed with representatives 
from the SKA, Department of Transport, Department of Science and Technology, Civil Aviation Authority, the Aviation Industry, and Air Traffic Navigation Services, the ATNS, the agency responsible for the country's airspace management. So, there you have it. The Aviation Industry versus Science. This will be a good one to watch play out. Finally, another continuing story we are following here at Astrophys is the ongoing quest to find the cause of FRBs, fast radio bursts. In a new paper, accepted into the Astrophysical Journal and currently available on the preprint resource archive, the research team behind this work has analysed the Magnetar XTEJ1810 197's low frequency radio output. According to their analysis of this particular Magnetar, the millisecond bursts of low frequency radio waves sputtered out by the Magnetar show an unusual similarity to FRB signals. It's far from conclusive proof at this stage that the two phenomena are linked, but it's one of the most tantalising hints yet. A reminder that magnetars are neutron stars with extremely strong magnetic fields over a quadrillion times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. Scientists first spotted this magnetar after an X-ray outburst in 2003, and in 2004, researchers detected a radio emission from this source. The magnetar produced the first transient radio emission ever detected by scientists. But after a few years of emitting variable radio emissions, the magnetar went quiet in 2008. Then it reactivated last year in December 2018. Scientists detected a bright, pulsed, radio signal at 1.52 gigahertz coming from this magnetar, the second radio outburst observed from this source. A strange and exciting observation. Scientists led by Yogesh Mann of the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy launched an investigation of the object, studying it at the low radio frequencies using the giant meter wave radio telescope, the GMRT. The team found that radio bursts from this magnetar are relatively narrow and also relatively strong. Quote, the bursts exhibit spectral structures which cannot be explained by interstellar propagation effects. The team of astronomers wrote in the paper describing their findings, which was published August 12 in Archive stating that the bursts from XTEJ1810-197 don't disseminate in space as expected. Now, if anyone would like a Nobel Prize, join the race to identify the cause of FRBs. Or just do it because you're curious and you like a challenge. Now go. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.